Our loving Father, we thank you that you're a God who speaks and uh, we thank you for these words uh, that we see in Exodus, in the Psalms, words that remind us of who you are and what you've done. Please encourage us and strengthen us and help us to get to know you more deeply as we look at your word together now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the greatest, said Muhammad Ali. Yes, I grew up watching Muhammad Ali. My grandfather, who was a Methodist minister, had boxing gloves. And uh, there was a time when my cousin and I, my cousin was about nine months younger than me, uh, we were arguing. We couldn't do what we were told. We couldn't get on. He said, right, I'm going to put boxing gloves on both of you. Now, my cousin tells me that he knocked me out at about the age of five. Uh, I have no recollection of that, which just goes to prove his point, of course. <laughs> Uh, but my grandfather was a boxer uh, in his early years. In fact, he boxed for the University of Melbourne. Uh, but as uh, time went on, he grew to hate the sport of boxing because of what he saw it doing to people. Uh, I remember in my young years watching Muhammad Ali, uh, not live, but on the television, uh, watching those fights of the century where you had Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser just absolutely hammering it at each other. I think it was uh, the first fight that Fraser won uh, and then the second fight that Muhammad Ali won uh, and uh, Muhammad Ali actually spoke of that second fight as I understand saying it's as close to death as he's ever come and he would not want to go back to that hell but he did. Uh, he fought George Foreman in the rumble in the jungle in Zaire. He fought Fraser again in the thriller in Manila in 1974, which is arguably the greatest boxing fight of all time. Now, I'm not here to tell you about boxing, but there's, in many ways, this particular part of the scriptures is a bit like a 10-round heavyweight bout. At first glance, it seems like it's a bout between Moses with his entourage, uh, Aaron, and maybe others, and Pharaoh and his entourage, his court officials and magicians. But when we look more closely, we see that it's actually a fight of much more significance, that this is a fight that Pharaoh cannot win. I want to pick it up uh, with you in chapter 5, because before the round starts, there's a bit of trash talk that goes on, as you'd expect with a boxing match. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, afterwards Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, and remember the Lord, that's the name Yahweh, we saw that last week, the God of Israel says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And then this is Pharaoh's trash talk. He says, Who is the Lord? Who is this God that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let the people go. So there's the picture. We have a contest. And we're going to see this contest pan out. But before the first round, and I'm going to be looking at the plagues, all ten of them, as like uh, each round of a boxing match, there is a curtain raiser. And the curtain raiser is that there's a bit of magic that takes place. Uh, early in chapter 7, you get uh, Pharaoh calling upon Moses and Aaron to do something impressive. And so Aaron takes his staff and he throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. At this, the uh, entourage of Pharaoh aren't particularly overwhelmed. 
they grab their staffs and throw it on the ground as well. Now I was reading up on this uh, during the week and uh, it's incredible how various people will take this event and all of these plagues and explain them away as just natural causes. And so they'll say that it's well known and you can see it today, you could probably YouTube it, that it's possible to hold a snake, perhaps a cobra, by a particular part of its neck which causes it to go rigid. And so it seems like a staff. And then, of course, if you were to throw it on the ground, it'd start slithering again, so it would look like a snake. But it's this next bit that's very difficult, and I doubt you'll see on YouTube. And that is, if you grab your staff and throw it on the ground, and they grab their staffs and throw it on the ground, and you get your staff to gobble up and eat their staffs. That's what happens. In fact, it doesn't even say that one snake ate the other snakes. It says that one staff ate the other staffs. So if you've got any staffs that'll do that, good on you. Well, we're going to see 10 rounds, and I'm going to move through them fairly quickly. And there are many things that we could see, many things we could draw attention to. Uh, I'll point to a couple of these that I'm not going to explore with you. But the Egyptians had literally dozens and dozens and dozens of their own gods. Two of the most prominent of their gods was the god of the Nile and the god of the sun. What we'll see is that Moses, doing the, the, the bidding of God, very easily overthrows their gods. In fact, they've also got gods of frogs and other gods that are represented by these various plagues. We can see all kinds of details as we look through these things, and they do get picked up in a number of different places, like the Psalms that we've looked at. But I want to explore this with you as a catalogue of what happens to Pharaoh's heart. Um, you remember last week, if you were with us, that as we looked through these earlier chapters, the thing that seemed to hold them together was Moses' objections. He objected and then he objected again and he objected again and he objected again. There were seven objections and each time God gave him an answer for these things. What seems to hold this section together is Pharaoh's heart. What is going on with Pharaoh's heart? And I really want to address two questions. What's going on with Pharaoh's heart and why is God doing what he's doing? So let's move uh, fairly quickly through these. The first of the plagues is the plague of blood. Uh, we see the river Nile turning into blood and the fish dying. Uh, a pretty toxic kind of event, I'm sure you'd agree. Some of you may have seen the footage that was on the news uh, a couple of years ago at the end of the drought of Menindee Lakes, uh, out past Broken Hill, where there were millions and millions of dead fish. Can you imagine the smell nearby? Well, there you have the first plague, basically. But the thing that I want you to see is the description of Pharaoh's heart there in verse 22. The Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. So end of round one, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Round two, the plague of frogs. Uh, there are frogs everywhere, frogs right around Egypt and frogs that are everywhere such that they come into bedrooms, uh, they go onto beds, they end up in the kitchen and in the places where you're cooking. Now, you might like frogs. We're, we've got a, a, a very special little green tree frog which loves to uh, hide away in the side of our place and sometimes it's even joined and attached itself to the back of our car 
Um, and that's a bit of fun. It goes for a ride and comes back and it's still there. And you might like frogs, but if you like frogs, then shift your thinking north of the border to cane toads. Cane toad after cane toad after cane toad. Um, you think about the plagues of mice that we saw in western New South Wales, where you couldn't see the ground because of the mice. Their cane toads are scattered everywhere. That's the picture. And what's going on? Well, you get Moses calling on Pharaoh to release the people, but then his heart again is hardened. It's down in verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief uh, after the frogs disappear, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then we get a plague of gnats. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what a gnat is, but I, I think uh, those of you who are parents, uh, who've had kids go to school, who get a, a message that comes home with your child that there is a lice infestation, uh, maybe just think lice on everybody, everywhere. If you don't know about lice, then think sandflies perhaps that cause that irritation that doesn't go away and you're in the right zone. And once again, after they calm down, uh, the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said. Then plague of flies. Um, I'm sure that most of us have seen flies. We know the national salute here in Australia. In fact, uh, if you've ever been out on a cattle property, uh, you've probably mistaken people's pink shirts for black ones when they're completely covered with flies. I think Fiona and my worst fly experience was being in Tully Gorge in the far north of Queensland where we went up to watch some whitewater rafting. We got out of the car and we were completely bombarded by March flies. There's a time of year when March flies are just absolutely everywhere. And the thing that we discovered after we were both wearing our royal blue shirts is that March flies are attracted to blue. So we ended up... Um, getting in the car, killing the flies that we could, and watching the rafting from behind the glass. Flies, they're infesting the nation of Israel. And as you keep working through these plagues, again and again and again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. The next plague is the plague on the livestock. You, you, you've got the slaughter of so many livestock. Again, we've got various examples of this. You go back to the drought when people were having to choose uh, their animals to die and those that they would keep. Uh, we go on from there to the fires where people had, had their stock, unfortunately, um, caught up in the fires. We go from there to the floods and the stock caught up in the floods. We know what it's like to lose livestock and the impact here, again, on the nation of Egypt. Uh, we see down there in verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 7 of uh, chapter, chapter 9, uh, Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Now in reading that verse, there's something else to notice. That is, as these plagues progress, you see more of a distinction between what happens to the Egyptians and what happens to the Israelites. Sometimes the Israelites are caught up in the whole plague as it happens. On other occasions, there's a very clear distinctive with God preserving the Israelites 
and the plague's only impacting the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's heart is hard again. Then you've got the plague of boils. Um, I'm sure we understand what boils are. Apparently you can have a lot of fun looking on YouTube at the popping of boils. Uh, I'm sorry to take your minds there. Um, but here are people, they're coming out in festering boils all over them. Think everyone chicken pox. Uh, but notice this, verse 12, the Lord, Yahweh, hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then we have uh, Moses again coming to Pharaoh, asking that the people might be released, uh, that they might go and worship him. But again, they're not allowed. And uh, as you come to the end of this long section with the plague of hail and thunder and lightning, so in verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord had said through Moses. Uh, we're getting through them. Then we have uh, the plague of uh, locusts, the beginning of chapter 10. Um, I, I imagine that you've probably seen, have you, like footage of uh, large plagues of grasshoppers, locusts and so on. Uh, massive scale in North Africa. Uh, I remember it was a couple of years ago seeing in Kenya, I think it was 200 uh, kilometres across, just locusts. And apparently when they swarm, they, they swarm in the numbers are in the billions. And in one day, they can eat as much food as three and a half million people can eat in a day. So you're talking about devastation on a catastrophic scale. Um, and uh, here we see the locust plague. Again, what's going on with Pharaoh's heart? Come down to verse 20 and you read, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the plague of darkness. Um, the, uh, the picture here is of three days of darkness. It's interesting that there's a distinction here between uh, the Israelites who are up to the north in the area of Goshen, they're not affected by this darkness, and the Egyptians that are further south of there who are affected by this darkness. So again, this separation. Uh, some have suggested that maybe it was being caused by a massive dust storm or something that would block out the sun and I think we've had a taste of that too haven't we remember the fires the days when the smoke was particularly bad um, it, it was like nighttime in the middle of the day we don't know how these things are being caused uh, but again the upshot of this with the plague of darkness verse 27 but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. And then uh, finally, we have the introduction of the final plague, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn that we're going to look at uh, next, well, not next week, but next fortnight when we come back to this and we focus on the Passover because it's all leading up to this tenth and final round. This is the, the main event, if you like. But we are told in advance what happens. So at the end of chapter 11, verse 10, Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So let's take a step back from this and look at it as a picture of what's going on with Pharaoh's heart. And as you read through, just you might like to glance at your handout, you'll notice that some of the time it's Pharaoh hardening his heart. Some of the time it's Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. 
Other times, it's Pharaoh's heart was hard or became hard. But then we've also got, particularly notice in the last three and the fifth last, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're told that this is as God promised to Moses. So if you go right back to the beginning of these plagues, uh, back in, uh, in chapter 7 and in the first few verses, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And, and through, and, and uh, though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. See, what's going on here? Is Pharaoh hardening his heart? Yes. Was Pharaoh's heart hard? Yes. Was Yahweh, the Lord, hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Um, what do we make of this? And I know that some of the salt groups had a look at this section over the course of this week. What do we make of the Lord, Yahweh, hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Is that right? I mean, is that what God does? Is, is that a fitting thing for God to do? Well, I want to take you a layer deeper into this. And unfortunately, it's, uh, it's not a layer that you could find in your English Bibles. Uh, and my Hebrew is, is very, very poor. But I went to Kurong during the week. And rather than buy a Strong's Concordance, I actually sat there and photographed it so that I would have the evidence in front of me. Uh, yeah, I, I did buy a Strong's Concordance once upon a time. But um, what we've got here with these words is two main words for harden. And they're different. One word is kabod, and the other word uh, is hazak, however you might say this in Hebrew. But I, I want to point out what these two words mean. The word kabod literally means heavy. Something's really heavy. And the Bible in English translates this almost invariably as glory. So the Lord's kabod is the Lord's heavyweightness. This is the Lord's glory. This, this is the significance and the weight and the impressive nature of God. The, the word that we have translated hazak, harden, is different in its nature. It's not the glory word. It's the kind of word that you might use if you were watching a Millionaire Hot Seat. You've got Eddie Maguire there, and he's asking you the answer to a question. And you come up with your answer, and then you say, lock it in, Eddie. And Eddie hardens it. He locks it in. It's the hardening word that is used of the Lord hardening, locking in Pharaoh's heart. It is the glory word that is being used of Pharaoh waiting up, glorifying himself, hardening his own heart. You see the nature of what's happening. Pharaoh is puffing himself up, filling himself with his own impressiveness. Each time he's giving himself the glory. Each time he gets away with it. He's given a warning. Um, 
He asks Moses to do something and Moses prays or, or the plague is undone in a particular way. And Pharaoh thinks to himself, I'm good. I've got away with it again. And he waits himself up. He glorifies himself all the more. What God does is he locks him in to the choice that he's making himself. Now, that is a very broad biblical idea. Where else do we see that? Well, I'll give you one example. You see it in Romans chapter 1. Let me give you, it's not exactly the same language, but it's the same idea. Let me read to you from Romans 1. It says, For although they knew God, verse 21, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. See, what it's saying here is of people that they know that there is a God of glory. But instead of glorifying God and treating him as God, they make other things and glorify the other things, including themselves. They exchange the glory of God for other glory. They become glory thieves. And that's the problem of humanity. And so what does God do? Three times we're told, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity or to other things. You see, God locks them in to their self-prideful, puffed-up, egocentric, proud, weighty glory-stealing. What's going on with Pharaoh's heart? He's hardening it. He wants to be God. And each time he gets away with something, he thinks he can be. But God reminds him again and again and again that he can't so why is god doing this well we're told a number of things in the text one of the most constant refrains with each of uh, the plagues not all of them but many of them is that the israelites ask pharaoh uh, moses and aaron come before pharaoh and they ask that the israelites might be released to go into the wilderness to worship God. You see it there in chapter 7 uh, with the plague of blood, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Uh, you see it with the plague of frogs, so that they may worship me. You see it down with the plague of flies, let my people go that they may worship me. You see it again with the livestock, uh, let my people go that they may worship me. Down with the plague of hail, uh, let my people go that they may worship me. Down with the plague of locusts, let the people go that they may worship me. And uh, again, with the plague of darkness, Pharaoh summoned Moses and says, go worship the Lord. That's God's purpose. God is going to save the Israelites from the Egyptians so that they might worship him. The initial call is that they might go out and worship, that they might go into the desert, that they might offer sacrifices in the desert, that they might do this for a short period of time. And each time, Pharaoh balks and won't let them go. And this is leading up to Pharaoh making a decision, and we'll see this next week, to let them go and not come back. 
So what is God's purpose in this? Well, God's purpose is that his people might worship him. It was his purpose then, it's his purpose now. God rescues people for the reason that they might freely offer him worship. We're going to see the outworking of this when we get to the Passover and next time we look at this, we'll draw more links to Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. But there's more that's said here as well. It's not just that his people might worship him. It's so that his people and all people, we're told, might know who the Lord is. And there's a number of statements about this, and I'll just pick up on two of them. So in chapter 9 and verse 16, we read this. But I have raised you up. This is, um, this is the word from the Lord to Pharaoh. I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, God has a gospel purpose for Pharaoh. God is planning to show his power to Pharaoh and through Pharaoh to be proclaimed to all the earth, that he is the judging and saving God. We see it again when we come down to chapter 10 uh, and the opening verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. See, God's purpose in this is that he might be remembered by the generations that come after Moses. And of course, when you get to the Passover and the annual remembrance of the Passover, the Jewish people continue to celebrate these events year after year after year after year and still do today. Uh, strict Jewish families will be celebrating Passover every year and they'll do it in a particular way. And they will ask the head of the household why they are doing these things and he will remind them of the Exodus, these events. But more of that in a fortnight. God wants to be known and, and God wants it to be passed from generation to generation. And God wants the whole world to know these acts lead to understanding that he is the one who judges sin and the one who saves his people. And those two things, friends, they, they go together. See, this is a passage that we, we could just moralise from. Let, let me give you a simple moral. Uh, Pharaoh puffed up his own heart. He was proud and he ignored God. Don't be like Pharaoh. Now, that's not a bad application. That's, that's in the right lane, okay? It's a good application at one level. But I think the passage actually pushes us beyond this. It's not just don't be like Pharaoh. It's come to know what God is like. God wants us to know what he's like. And I think that this expands our view of God. See, when you heard that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, did you cringe a little bit that God might be like that? Is it just a little bit awkward? I mean, who does he think he is? God or something. You see... God will bring his judgment upon all evil. Don't be mistaken. 
This reminds the Egyptians, it reminds the Israelites, it reminds subsequent generations, and through the proclamation of this, it reminds our whole earth that it's appointed for people to die once and after that's to face judgment. And God hands us over to our choices to rebel against him in this world. We experience his judgment here and now. That's what we saw in Romans 1. You see, the Bible says that the way to know wisdom, true wisdom, is to start by fearing the Lord. It actually means taking God seriously. He's not a pet imaginary friend. He's the God who hates evil. The God who loves to rescue those who trust in him. And we see that in these events, that God brings his judgment upon Pharaoh. 430 years they had oppressed these people. And God will bring his judgment upon them. And he will demonstrate that in judgment he brings salvation. I, I, I think we like the idea of God being a saving God. We find it harder to think of God being a judge. But let me put it like this. If God is the saviour, what does he save people from? He saves people from his judgment. God chooses to do that. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we've come up with something that has just kind of twisted God's arm so that he has to respond. No, God loves to save That's his delight. Judgment, well, Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21 says that's his alien task, his strange work. His first delight is to save, but he saves through judgment. We're going to see it in graphic terms as the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea. We see it in even more graphic terms when the Son of God is nailed on a cross. There is judgment, judging sin that all those who trust in Jesus might be saved. Friends, this part of God's word is so that we might know Yahweh, that, that we might grow to fear the Lord, that we might understand how big and awesome and powerful and loving is our God. To, to be filled with an assurance that, that this God will call everything and everyone to an account. He won't let the guilty go unpunished. But he takes the guilt of the guilty upon himself in Jesus so that we are not punished if we trust in Jesus. So let me ask you this question as well. Who or what do you fear? Do you fear the Lord most of all? Because you see, if you hear, and here's the the delightful kind of twist. If, If you fear the Lord... First and foremost, there's nothing you need to fear. If if you honour God, you reverence God as your judge, as your saving God, who makes you his children, adopts you into his family, that you might call him Abba Father, if you fear the Lord, then you don't need to fear people. You don't need to fear Pharaoh. Don't need to fear the Liberal Party or the Labour Party or the Greens. Or one nation. You don't need to fear the Chinese Communist Party. You don't need to fear Putin. You don't need to fear... You could go right through this world and talk about people who have created great fear, but they cannot separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. 
Friends, Pharaoh was foolish. He picked a fight that he couldn't win. Let's not be like Pharaoh, puffing up our own hearts with pride, but let's not be like Pharaoh, thinking that we will get away with whatever we please. Let's instead turn to Jesus, thanking God for the wonder of his salvation made possible through him taking the judgment. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you that, that you are the powerful and almighty creator and sustainer of this universe who's stepped into life, who's shared in our humanity through Christ. We thank you that you chose to reveal yourself and, and make your glory known through your judgment upon Egypt. But we thank you most of all that you have poured out your judgment on your son so that you can welcome us into your family. We know that you've vindicated Jesus, that you've raised him from the dead and that he sits at your right hand. And we thank you that we can come to you now in full assurance of faith. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.